0: Isaiah chapter 20 Isaiah chapter 20 We're going to cover chapter 20 and 21 chapter 20 is a is a short short And so This this evening's title is the invasion and defeat of egypt and ethiopia the invasion and defeat of egypt and ethiopia in chapter 19 Isaiah prophesied about the destruction of Egypt that was coming Here in chapter 20 that destruction starts to come to pass Egypt was to be attacked And those in judah who wanted to put their trust in egypt Would see egypt get defeated And the attack would come by the way of the assyrians And as this chapter shows us Isaiah was against trusting in Egypt, and it might be at this time that some attention was being paid to his words. Because as far as we know, Judah wasn't attacked by Sargon, who was then at the height of his power. Now remember, Egypt represents a type of this world. Let's begin uh, with verse 1 now of chapter 20. It says, in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. Sargon II was the king of Assyria from 722 to 705 BC. And this event happened in 711 BC. Isaiah clearly reminds Judah that they shouldn't count on foreign partnerships to protect them. Tartan, now Tartan is not the name of anybody. It is a is a title. The word Tartan means commander-in-chief. And Tartan, the commander-in-chief, was a general in the Assyrian army. Ashdod was a city. It was in the northern kingdom of the ten tribes. Verse 2. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Isaiah was to become a walking parable to Israel as a warning not to become partners with Egypt. And again, keeping in mind the world as we are not to become partners with the world. Isaiah wasn't really naked. It says, like it says here, as we understand, be naked. He wasn't really naked. He was uncovered. That is, he laid aside the outward tunic, all right, he wore tunics, they had one underneath and one over it, and so he was to lay aside his outward tunic of mourning. Now this would get the people's attention, and it would help Isaiah to make his point. God told Isaiah to walk around naked or uncovered for three years. It was a humiliating experience. But God was using Isaiah to illustrate the humiliation that Egypt and Ethiopia would experience at the hands of Assyria. But the message was really for Judah. In other words, it was to tell Judah, hey, look, don't put your trust in foreign governments. Or you will experience this kind of shame and humiliation from your captors. So God asked Isaiah to do something that seemed shameful and unreasonable. And you know what? Sometimes we feel the same thing when God asks us to do certain things. Sometimes God might ask us to do things that we don't understand. Or maybe things that make us uncomfortable. And we don't see any purpose in it. But you see, we have to, we, we have to trust in the wisdom of God. We have to obey God in total faith, knowing that He will never ask us to do something wrong. He will never do, ask us to do anything that isn't for our benefit. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Again, Isaiah was to be a sign. He was a symbol of the terrible troubles that God would bring upon Egypt and Ethiopia. And since Egypt couldn't protect herself, nor could Egypt protect Ethiopia, Egypt wouldn't be a reliable helper for Israel. Both Egypt and Ethiopia were invaded by Sargon, the king of Assyria, and this shame that Isaiah predicted came upon Egypt. So this implies that those with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt had been uh, humiliated by God in this way. And this was a particular disgrace. As a matter of fact, in 2 Samuel 10, 4, David and his servants experienced the same thing at one time. 2 Samuel 10, 4 says, Therefore Hannon took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. So the Egyptians are to be carried away into captivity in a very humiliating way. Verses 5 and 6. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day... Surely such is our expectation wherever we flee for help to be delivered notice from the king of Assyria and how shall we escape So Isaiah says then the Philistines are going to are going to are going to panic they're going to freak out because they were counting on Ethiopia they were counting on the power of Ethiopia and they were boasting to their friends about Egypt and they're going to say, you know, if this can happen to Egypt, what chance do we have? We were counting on Egypt to protect us from the king of Assyria. You know, the thing is, we, we can't count on the world for anything. All right, just as they, they couldn't count on Egypt to protect them from Assyria. Verse, now chapter 21, I should say. Chapter 21 now, here in chapter 21, Isaiah talks about the destruction that's going to come upon Babylon, and then Edom, and then Arabia. And this destruction will come from the Medo-Persian Empire, but it won't come for another 200 years. So Isaiah's prophesying about things that are still to take place some 200 years in the future is when Babylon will fall to the Medo-Persian Empire. Later in chapter 45, Isaiah will give us very intricate details about the fall of Babylon and even names for us at that point the Medo-Persian general who will conquer Babylon. Chapter 21, now verse 1. The burden or the message against the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. So when Isaiah uh, says the burden against the wilderness of the sea, Isaiah is talking about Babylon here. But he doesn't call it Babylon. He calls it the wilderness of the sea or in the, in the King James Version, it's, he, Babylon is called Desert of the Sea, which when you think about it, it's an oxymoron. It's like saying the dryness of the water or how dry the water is. Babylon was pretty far inland. It wasn't close to the seashore. It wasn't close to water. So why does Isaiah give Babylon, again, remember, a type of the world, this name, Wilderness of the Sea? It doesn't fit. Because Isaiah's mission, remember, was to persuade people to stop trusting in their own deliverances and start trusting in God's deliverances. When Isaiah calls Babylon the wilderness of the sea or the desert of the sea, he's being sarcastic. Now, a desert can't support human life. The sea, it's full of water, but you can't drink it. Nor can it support human life. So the desert of the sea is the worst possible situation, both dry and wet together, but neither condition is helpful to sustain human life. In other words, Babylon has nothing to offer us. Babylon too is also a type of the world. The world has nothing to offer us. Don't trust in Babylon. Don't admire Babylon. Don't put your hopes there. God has another kingdom for us another glory, another salvation. John said in Revelation, Revelation eighteen twenty one, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. That's what's going to happen to the world in the end. It's going to be destroyed, and we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth come down from heaven. Verse 2, A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam. Besiege, O media. All its sign I have made to cease. Isaiah says, man, man, I see a terrifying vision. I've had a terrifying vision. He says, I see the betrayer betraying. I see the destroyer destroying. And he says, go ahead, you Elamites and Medes, attack. And lay siege. I will put an end to all the groaning that Babylon has caused you. God commands Medo-Persia to destroy and to spoil Babylon. The Babylonians. Go up, he says, Elam, which is Persia. Besiege, O media. O and that's exactly what happened. This is a prophecy that was given before the invasion even took place. Verse 3. Therefore, my loins are filled with pain pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor i was distressed when i heard it i was dismayed when i saw it isaiah says my stomach is in pain it aches it burns with pain he says, it's like it's sharp pangs of anguish are upon me like a woman in labor he says i get weak when i hear what god is planning to do he says i'm afraid to look so isaiah here tells us how he feels When he hears about what's coming upon Babylon. The vision that God lets him see was hard for him to take. And once again, Isaiah is moved with great feeling and emotion. When he learns about the destruction that's coming. God is showing us his heart through Isaiah's emotions. Wanting to show mercy, not wanting to judge. Even such a fearsome enemy. God's love is obvious here. No one can rejoice in God's judgment. You know, God doesn't want to judge anybody. He doesn't want to judge us. He wants to save us. But again, that choice is totally up to you and I. God doesn't want to judge nations either. But again, the choice is upon those nations. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm thirty-three twelve, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. God said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his life and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And then 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter said, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we read several times that God doesn't take pleasure in destroying the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in seeing the wicked die. The vision here wasn't, and the vision wasn't Isaiah's own personal vision. It didn't come from his mind or his own thoughts. It didn't start in his head. This vision had nothing to do, it was none of Isaiah, it had nothing to do with him. The vision was all made to, known to Isaiah by God. God gave Isaiah this vision. And it's verified by 2 Peter 1, verse 20 through 21 says knowing this first that no prophecy okay no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of god spoke as they were moved by the holy spirit all right and when when you know when when Again, men say, "Oh, well, I had a prophecy," or it's not that they can't, because God says that in the last days men will prophesy. But it needs to be validated by the Scripture. A lot of times, you know, people say, well, "Well, I had a prophecy," and they start to tell you what it is, and it's 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 very unbiblical. It's not supported by Scripture. And when Peter says here that that no prophecy of Scripture is of any uh, private interpretation, this means that Scripture didn't come from the prophet's imagination what isaiah saw was not from his own mind from his own imagination god inspired him god inspired the writers of the scripture so that their message is true and it's reliable god uses their talents he uses their education he uses their cultural background and 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 they, they weren't just mindless robots And God worked with the writers in such a way to make sure that the message God intended for us to hear and for all those here was faithfully communicated in every word that they wrote. Verse four, Isaiah said, my heart wavered. And again, he's talking about this vision that he saw. He said, man, my heart wavered or it trembled. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. So Isaiah is saying here, the, the description the description of Isaiah's emotions here are, are, are continued. He says, my mind reels. He says, my heart is racing. My heart, my heart is beating fast. It's pounding. He said, so much so. He said, I wanted evening to come, but now I'm afraid of the dark. Like Joseph, who was wandering around in the field in Genesis 37, 15, not knowing where he was going. So was Isaiah's heart. It was wandering around. It was, it, Isaiah's heart was an erring heart. Now, when I say an erring heart, not that he, he strayed into sin. He wasn't in sin. His heart wasn't in sin. But his heart wasn't acting the way a normal heart should act. I mean, you know, he, he was reeling. It was pounding fast. It was pounding hard. Usually when it's, it's pounding and it feels weird, we're thinking, oh, I'm having a big one, you know, we're thinking something's wrong. And that's what's going on with Isaiah. This wasn't normal. This wasn't a natural behavior of the heart. Right? It wasn't acting the way it should. It was agitated. And it was beating quickly because of the the, the fear that he saw in this vision. And so it's something like this that seems to be the thought of the text here. Rather than the idea that Isaiah's heart was troubled because he couldn't understand the religious nature of the situation. And as a result of the vision, Isaiah's heart wavered, it says here, which means in in general that it was shaking, it was trembling. You know, it's disturbed, and Isaiah is terrified. And then the second main clause says that the time of the evening had become a time of trembling. All right, normally, you know, sunset or evening was usually the time when he would find pleasure, you know, relaxing from the problems of the day. And a lot of times, like us, you know, you know, we get off work, we look towards the evening, we go home, and it's a time of relaxing and just, you know, just, just releasing the stress of the day from the problems of the day. You know, for, for, for Isaiah, it was the same thing. It was a time for meditation and a time for rest. But he's saying, now the evening was no longer a time of pleasure for me because God had changed it into a time of trembling and terror. And it could be that it was in the evening when Isaiah got this vision. So the evening no longer, he no longer thought of the evening as a time of pleasure and a time of rest. Now, whether this is true or not, we don't know. Maybe Isaiah just simply means that the evening could no longer be a time of pleasure for him. Because the terror of the vision continued to be with him. So changing the evening time... All right, into a time of trembling and terror is what he may be talking about here. Verse five, Isaiah says, prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. He says, look, he says, they're preparing a great feast. They're spreading rugs for the people to sit down on. Everybody's eating and drinking. And then he suddenly says, hurry up. Anoint your shields and get ready for battle. You're being attacked. Without naming them, Isaiah is describing those who oppressed his people as they're arranging or setting the table for a banquet. The arrogant, worry-free Babylonians here, they were making preparations for this feast. This time to eat and have a good time. But they uh, weren't—they weren't making the necessary preparations for war. They were preparing for a banquet. They were looking forward to having a feast and a good time and just a a time of partying. But then suddenly, like I said, the mood changes. Isaiah says, "Arise now, get up, because the moment of crisis has come." He says, "Anoint the shield." Now, what does that mean? Anoint the shield means that the soldiers, what they would do, they would grease. They would put grease on these shields before they would go to battle so that when the enemy would fire the arrows, they would glance off of the shield because it had this grease on it. And so he's saying, anoint the shields. You know, get get ready for this battle. So in the midst of this party in verse 5, in this eating and drinking, suddenly there comes this cry for the princes to arise, get ready for battle. It's the princes here that Isaiah is talking to because they're the ones who are responsible for the condition of the nation. The leaders, the princes, the leaders, they were self-confident. They weren't concerned about what was going on, which was obvious because of the command that Isaiah gave. Hey, guys, arise, pay attention, anoint your shields, get ready for battle. So Isaiah is really agitated here by what he sees in the vision. And yet at the same time, he acts as a responsible person. To these pleasure-seeking Babylonians, he attributes their continuance in pleasure-seeking as though to say, guys, you have no concern. You believe that that you're okay. You believe you're the masters of the world. So he's kind of saying, okay, you guys, that's the way you think. Keep on feasting. But he says, you better get up because the enemy is at the gate. And in Daniel chapter 5, when Babylon fell, Belshazzar ordered a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and they were eating and drinking. And while they were drunk, remember, Belshazzar called for the golden vessels that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem to be brought in so that they could drink their wine out of them. So they started to praise the gods of gold and silver when all of a sudden there was handwriting on the wall. And so Isaiah seems to be describing that scene some 200 years earlier before it even took place. And actually Babylon didn't fall until about 250 years after, that is 260 years after Isaiah wrote this here in chapter 21. And yet the Lord gives him this vision, the destruction of Babylon in the midst of this this festivity, this partying, this eating and drinking. Verse 6, For thus has the Lord said to me, In other words, this is what the Lord has said to me. Go set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. So Isaiah now goes back. He goes back up. uh, He he backs up now what he just said. Isaiah believes that Babylon is going to fall because he has been commanded by God to put a watchman on the city wall to report what he sees and what he sees has to do with Babylon's downfall. The defeat of Babylon lies in the control of the one who has all the power. And that's why he calls him Lord here, the sovereign one. And instead of just predicting the things that would happen in the future, Isaiah is commanded to put a watchman on the wall who will report what this future course of events will be. And by doing this, he is carrying out his prophetic commission. In other words, he's carrying out what God told him to do. Because notice in verse 6, he is commanded to go and set up a watchman. The word set means to cause to stand. Go and cause a watchman to stand on the walls and report everything that you see. Verse 7. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. The Elamites... They used to use donkeys in battle. Now, they, they, they wouldn't pull chariots with them. But they, but they would ride on the donkeys. The Medes, they would use the camels. Not to pull chariots, but they would ride on the camels. So they were sort of their, their, their cavalry unit. The vision of the riders could represent the Medes and the Persians attacking Babylon in 539 B.C. Verse 8. Then he cried, A lion, my lord! I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. Notice he's speaking of his obedience here. He says, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime and I have sat at my post every night. We see the obedience of Isaiah. Here and in verse 9, the fulfillment of the command is given. When the watchman sees the army described in verse 7, he was to announce what he sees. And then it says, he, the watchman, cried. Here is the watchman's response to what he saw. He expresses in his cry his faithfulness in which he carries out his duty. Again, he says, man, I've been here. I've done what you've told me to do. And he addresses him as his Lord, my Lord. The watchman cried a lion. Or he may be saying he saw a lion. Cyrus. In other words, it could be Cyrus at the head of the Persian and Median armies, you know, he's compared to a lion because of his fierceness and his courage and his strength. Verse nine. He goes on to say, and look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered, and he said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Now this is a continuation of what the watchman was reporting in verse eight. Isaiah cries out to God and he announces the approaching enemy. The watchman on the walls of the city tells the people inside what he sees. He says, hey, he says, as I look out into the desert, here comes a chariot of men with a couple of horses. Their messengers and their message is Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So the watchman brings word to the king of Babylon that it's fallen here in verse 9. And all of Babylon's idols. All of her gods are broken down to the ground, it says. And it says this is a sign this is a sigh of sorrow as well as relief. It's a sign of sorrow as 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 well as relief. Babylon, because Babylon was the source of all idolatry. Babylon wasn't just a great and powerful city, it was also filled with horrible sin. With idolatry, idolatry and witchcraft and temple prostitution, Babylon was and still is a symbol of everything that stands against God. A pretty good description of the world. Even with all of Babylon's glory and all of Babylon's power, it would be destroyed along with all of its idols and all of its sin. They wouldn't be any help. They're gods. They're idols. All those things that they worship, they wouldn't be of any help to Babylon in their time of trouble. Verse 10. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. So speaking in God's name, Isaiah now goes to the heart of the matter. All that had been said about Babylon was for Israel's benefit. Babylon had grown strong and had grown powerful, while oppressed Israel had suffered. Isaiah expresses his love and his compassion for his nation in the words, my threshing, my threshing. Now, my threshing stands for crushing oppression. All right, Israel had been oppressed. It had been threshed. So again, my threshing stands for crushing opposition against Israel. The oppression, the oppression though against Israel wasn't being done by God, but at the hands of others. The nation of Israel had been threshed, yet they were still God's people. Now, threshing and winnowing were two steps in Israel's farming process. Now, if you read the Gospels, you've probably read about threshing and winnowing. Threshing and winnowing because there were two steps in Israel's farming process. The heads of wheat... Which were often used to symbolize Israel because the wheat was the good part. Okay, so the heads of wheat were often used to symbolize Israel. They would first be trampled on. They set the wheat down and they trample on the wheat. They'd be crushing the wheat so, and they, so that it the, would break open the seeds, and it would expose the valuable, the, the valued heads of grains. That's what they wanted from the stalks of wheat. Those those heads of grain uh, that were inside. That's called threshing. The stomping on the on the wheat. Was called threshing. So again, it would break the wheat apart. It would it would expose the the grain. Is and again, that's the part they wanted to keep. Now the winnowing, there and again in the gospels you would read of a winnowing fork. It was a fork type instrument, and they would pick up the wheat and they throw they throw the thresh wheat that had already been traveled. They throw it up in the air. As they threw it up in the air, the wind would blow away the chaff, the unwanted portion. And the wheat would fall back to the ground. All right? So that's what was the winnowing and threshing. And so the chaff, and I relate chaff to you know, when you eat peanuts and you got that brown skin that goes everywhere and it sticks to your teeth, and you know, that's kind of like the chaff. You know, it just, it's light, it's, you don't want that part. You know, it just, it goes or it goes everywhere, but you know, where you want it to go. But, but the peanut part, the, that, that's what you do. And so, again, it, the head of wheat was the same thing. The chaff would be like that skin of the and it would blow off in the wind, and down would come the heavier part, which is the wheat, and that would be gathered up you know, in the baskets for the people. So this was the process of winnowing and threshing, and that's what the threshing floor was, the place where the wheat would be stomped on, it would be threshed, and the heads of the wheat you know coming out of the wheat uh, onto the floor. So Israel would experience the same kind of process, the threshing, the crushing. Again, and then the worthless, sinful, rebellious people, the chaff would be taken away. But, But God would keep the good grain to replenish Israel. So God in his providence let Babylon thresh or crush Israel so that Israel, being threshed, or crushed completely is now like the wheat that has come from the floor. So Babylon is seen to be the instrument of the threshing wrath of God. But when God's wrath is very is most severe. And the wave of judgment seems to be the heaviest. That's when the hope of deliverance appears. When it, you know, when it appears that you, know, you just can't take anymore. You've been, you've been crushed. You've been stomped on. Till you can't be stomped on anymore. That's when the hope of deliverance comes. When, when you are at your wit's end. That's where you find the beginning of God. That's when you find the beginning of God. And Isaiah tells the people. What I have heard from the Lord, I have declared it to you. There in verse 10. What he's declared, there's a deliverance that's coming, people. Babylon, the oppressors of Israel. Babylon, the the, the instrument that God used to thresh Israel, is going to fall. And there is going to be freedom for those that were threshed to grain. Verse 11. The burden against Duma. He calls me to, out of seer, watchman, what of the night, watchman, what of the night. This speaks of the judgment of Edom. Duma is a symbolic word for Edom. And as we have started earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah played on words to bring out a deeper meaning of what he was saying. And we've already seen that in the earlier chapters. He used words to carry a message to the people. And when you take the E off of Edom, you have Duma, which means silence. Our word dumb is closer to the intent and purpose of what Isaiah is saying. Edom is still a land of, of death-like science, uh, silence. The word seer, it means rough or hairy. Esau was the first man of Seir, Genesis 25, 25. And he was hairy. And he dwelt in Mount Seir. Seir also means storms. So it was a land swept with storms. Silence and storms. So it's a play on words, and what a message it is. Edom is clearly the country involved here. Out of the land of silence and storm comes this question. There in verse 11, and it's asked twice, Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? In other words, how much of the night is gone? What's left? How long will it be before God's glory will be revealed? The Assyrian army had brought great fear and darkness to the nations. And Edom wanted to know if there was any hope, any light. Isaiah's reply was short but to the point. With with, with information that was given and an invitation, notice in verse 12. The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. The watchman said to Edom. Again, he gave him information and invitation. The watchman replied, Morning is coming, but night will soon return. If you want to ask again, then come back and ask. In other words, morning. Normally, morning is a good time. Except if you maybe have to get up real early. But usually, you know, you look forward to the morning. Morning was coming. Morning was coming. Because Assyria was going to be defeated by God in the fields of, of, of Judah. We see that in Isaiah 37, 36. But the mourning wouldn't last. Because Babylon would take Assyria's place and bring more darkness to the nation. But then Isaiah, notice, added an invitation with just three simple words there at the end of verse 12. Look at it again. He says, if you will inquire, here's the three words, inquire, return come back. Isaiah urged the people to inquire of the Lord. That is, seek the Lord and turn from sin and then return to him and then come to him and he will receive you. It's a brief day. It's a short day of salvation that would appear And what he's saying, again, when he says, you know, what of the night and what of that? He says, you know, it's a short time. But you can inquire of him and you can return to him and you can come to him and he'll receive you. But it's not going to be a lasting time. It's going to appear and then you better take the opportunity. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, you know, in Acts, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But notice today. The Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice. It didn't say the Holy Spirit says when you hear, if today. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Edom did not pay any attention to this invitation to inquire, to return, to come. The nation was taken by Babylon, then by the Persians who changed their name to Idumea, and finally by the Romans. You see, both morning and night are coming. What will be the glory for some will be the doom for others. What will be light for God's people will be darkness for the Edomites, the men of the flesh who have rejected God. And it's the same with us, you know, that morning and night, you know, it shows a sequence of time. And then a new day begins. So, it, you know, if the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, don't put it off. Don't wait till you think I, will ha- I have more time or I need to wait for a better time in my life to come to Jesus. Because, again, you're not guaranteed that time. Verse 13. The burden against Arabia in the forest in Arabia, you will lodge. Oh, you traveling companies of Dedanites. The judgment on Arabia here, Arabia was the land of the Ishmaelites, the Bedouin tribes, the nomads nomads of the desert. They are the modern Arabs of today. Abraham's sons, remember Ishmael and Isaac? Remember they never did get along? And Sarah told Abraham, hey man, you need to to give uh, Ishmael the boot. You You need to kick him out of the house. And he didn't want to do this, but she was right. They couldn't get along. They never did get along. They will never get along because one was the work of the flesh and one was the work of the spirit. The flesh and the spirit are always at war and will always be at war with each other until we are out of here in our new heaven and we're in our new heavenly glorified bodies. Paul made that clear in Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Paul said, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's why we have the, this struggle in our spiritual walk many times. Because we have the spirit saying one thing and we have the flesh saying the other thing. And there's a constant battle in wanting to do the will of God and then wanting to do what our flesh wants us to do. They're contrary to one another. Now, how, how do you win that battle? How do you determine whether the spirit's going to win or the flesh is going to win? Well, it's whichever spirit you feed the most. If you feed the Spirit the things of the Spirit like the Word of God and you're in prayer and you're in fellowship and you're, you're, you're doing these things that, that help the Spirit to grow and to be fed, then the Spirit's going to win when the flesh attacks. But if you're not doing those things, you're not reading God's Word, and you're not in prayer, you're not in fellowship, and you're feeding the flesh with with things that you're watching on TV or you're hearing or or the things that you're doing, the places you go, the people you hang out with, well, the flesh is going to get the victory because the flesh is pushing the spirit out of your life. The descendants of Ishmael and Isaac do not get along to this very day. That's what's going on in Israel with the Arabs and the Jews. It's a result of Isaac and Ishmael from day one. Matter of fact, they were at war in the womb. So, the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac, I'm sorry, I got, forget that, just the wrong, wrong, wrong chapter. The descendants of Ishmael and Isaac don't get along today, again, because the Arabs and Jews are still at each other's throats today. Can you imagine, well, you know, if Abraham was here and he could see what's going on today he'd probably be kicking himself I wonder what he think of his sin that he committed with Hagar sarah's handmaid and, and this this shows us that the, and we need to remember sin never stops working itself out in man's life let's close with verses 14 and seventeen through fourteen through seventeen O oh, inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who was thirsty. With their bread, they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. So, here, Isaiah says, judgment was coming on this land, and judgment was coming on the, land, the the people of the land. Isaiah saw the caravans of the Arabian merchants from Dedan leaving the, the, the trade route and hiding in the brush because of the invasion of the Assyrians' army. It says here, food and water were brought to the fugitives by the people from Tima. Now, Tima was a flourishing town. But eventually, the caravan had to, had to flee. It had to take off. Because the merchants, their slow animals couldn't compete with the Assyrian cavalry or their bows or the attackers' weapons. God had a covenant to keep. And within a year, the greatness and the glory of the Arabian tribes would be gone. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It might be evening here. It might be evening now, but morning is coming. And the night of weeping, hey, it will soon be over. And the new day will come. Man's evening of failure, time of failure, his sin and his darkness, it will end. And God's morning will come with the son of righteousness when he comes. And so again, today is the day of salvation. It's now. It's, it's when, the, when, when the spirit of God moves upon your heart. It's the time to open that heart and to allow the spirit of God to come in and to take over To be renewed. To be born again. To enter into the kingdom of God. His marvelous kingdom. Father, we thank you once again for this chapter. We thank you for the the purity of your word. The dependability of your word, God. The trustworthiness of your word, God. And Father, we pray that your spirit would move in the hearts of people, Lord. And that, Father, for those that don't know you, Lord, that they would understand the seriousness of their need for Jesus. Because that, that, that time of God's grace will come to an end one day. And we don't know when that, that day will be. So, we have to take advantage of the moment. The time is now. Receive Christ. Confess that you're a sinner. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And then to help you to walk His walk, His way, every day. And then thank Him dine on the cross for you. And Lord, we thank you for for our souls, Lord, that you saved them, Lord. We thank you for the cross, we thank you for the blood. We thank you for the salvation that you've given us, Lord. You paid for it, Lord, because we couldn't. So Lord bless our time together now bless those as they go home or wherever they need to go lord protect them watch over them lord we pray these things in jesus name amen all right sunday morning book of acts again we'll be in chapter seven and uh again